Quick content warning up top. This episode contains some fairly graphic descriptions of violence. This is Fogland Lighthouse. I'm Jack Dean. You are born the way we all are. Screaming, crying, vulnerable. Blown by the winds of life. I want to tell you it gets better from there. And for a while, it does. Starting out, you're one of the lucky ones. Besides being born white and male in 1767, which, like many others, is a great year for being born white and male, you have two loving parents at your side, Richard and Sarah Parker. Richard gives you the name Richard. He'd held off giving it to your five older siblings, so to Sarah this seems only fair. You grow up at number one little style, a comfortable mid-sized house, in an alley next to the Cathedral Green in Exeter, a comfortable mid-sized city. Your father, Richard Senior, runs a successful bakery on the ground floor, and you have a comfortable middle-class upbringing, attending the free grammar school at the Cathedral a stone's throw from your house. But the wind keeps blowing, pushing you away from the life of your siblings away from the smell of fresh bread and fresh-cut grass, to the strange and boundless allure of the sea. You leave school at 12 and start learning navigation at Topsham. At 15, your cousin manages to land you a job as midshipman on the HMS Mediator, a 44-gun fifth-rate. By the end of the year, you are seeing action in the American War of Independence. The Mediator sights five enemy ships off the coast of Spain, takes them all on alone and wins then heads off to the West Indies to capture trade ships until the peace is signed. Near Barbados, you're caught in a hurricane. A ball of lightning strikes the mast, causing an explosion that throws sailors across the ship. Amazingly, no one is killed, save all of the captain's poor pigs. You even manage to repair the mast, a feat for which the captain has the pigs turned into a mountain of pork and served to the crew in a great feast of gratitude. But Navy life is not what you hoped. For every day except that one in the West Indies, the food is horrendous. Biscuits with maggots in, salted meat that is nothing but lumps of dry gristle. Even the water is oily and green from storage and old barrels. The purses skim what little food you get, cheating the weighing system to hold back two ounces in every pound. And you are constantly hungry. Sailors' pay hasn't gone up in 150 years, though a shilling is only worth two-thirds of what it was back then. You have to buy your own clothing and bedding out of this pittance, and sometimes you aren't paid for months or even years. Some of your shipmates haven't been paid in over a decade. When the ship docks for repairs or resupply, you are not allowed shore leave for fear of desertion, so you are forced to watch. A prisoner on your own ship, while the senior officers do as they please on land. If you fall sick... Your pay is docked until you recover. And if you get pensioned out from disability, the money barely makes ends meet. But worst of all is the so-called discipline. The captains and lieutenants rove the ship like petty tyrants, dispensing brutality for trivial offences. Climb the rigging too slowly, you are flogged. Descend the rigging too quickly, you are flogged. Miss one of the hundreds of protocols and formalities attending officers going on and off the ship. You are dunked in and out of the sea until you are nearly drowned, or tied to the masthead, or gagged with an iron bar. You are given a half pint of grog a day to take the foul taste of the water out. If you are seen to be drunk, you are flogged. 
12 lashes with the cat of nine tails is supposed to be the maximum, but the officers never pay that any mind. You see men pulverise until the flesh is stripped from their back, until the bones start showing, until they bite their own tongues off from the pain. Many never recover. One day, age 26, you snap. An officer swans into your quarters at dawn and shrieks at you to clear your hammock out. You tell him no. You've worked up a high enough rank by this time that they can't flog you to breaking point like so many of your friends. But you are quickly court-martialed for insubordination, demoted down to the lowest possible rank, and then discharged the next year, blown by the winds back home to Exeter. You try and start a new life. You marry a beautiful Scottish woman called Anne. Your big brother John is the witness at the wedding and bakes all the cakes. Two years later, you name your first son after him. You get a job as a school teacher, but the pay is even worse than a sailor's. The country is sliding into recession as the government blocks all trade to the continent in a fruitless attempt to turn the tide against Napoleon. You accrue more and more debt until they throw you in jail for it. Your baby son John is blown by the winds out of this world before his first birthday. Your mind breaks. On your third week in jail, they offer you £20 if you join the Navy again. That's enough to square your debts and leave a little for Anne. You take the deal. On the ship taking you to your assignment, you jump overboard, hoping the sea will take you. But the winds don't blow that way. Not yet. You are fished out and taken to the North Sea fleet, anchored at the mouth of the Thames, just off a spit of sand called the Nore. You are flung aboard the HMS Sandwich, a ship worse than any you've been on. 1,500 people are packed onto a ship meant to carry only half that number. Fevers and diseases rip through the decks. The ship is riddled with leaks, and you wake to a hammock sodden with bilge water. Something, somewhere, has to give. And then, one spring morning, it does. You're working on some carpentry below decks when you hear the muffled sound of three cheers. You walk out to chaos. Men are running across decks, climbing the rigging, yelling to each other. Boats are rowing between the ships. Officers are rounded up at Cutlass Point. The Admiral of the Fleet hastens into a boat and legs it to shore. All around, you see the red, red flag of mutiny being hoisted up masts. When one ship refuses to join the uprising, a warning shot from the appropriately named HMS Inflexible quickly changes her mind. And just like that, the fleet is taken. You hear that a mutiny just like this has taken place in the Channel Fleet at Spithead near Portsmouth. So that means a good chunk of the entire navy has turned against its admirals. When the smoke clears, each ship in the fleet sends two delegates to meet aboard the sandwich. And you are invited to join them. The delegates tell you they need someone who can lead negotiations with the Admiralty, who can speak their language and still get the sailors the fair conditions they deserve. Someone, say, with a grammar school education, officer experience, and a mind that, though a little broken, is still sharp. They offer you the role of president of this new floating republic. You could say no, try and distance yourself from the whole thing, find a way back to Anne. But you feel the winds turning towards a better world, blowing you with them. You accept. You and the delegates get the whole fleet to swear an oath of allegiance to the mutiny and start drawing up a list of demands. 
you get news that the ships at Spithead secured a deal with the Admiralty. The newspapers are calling it the Breeze at Spithead. But you're not settling for what they did. If Spithead was a breeze, the Nor will be a gale like they've never seen. On top of their concessions, you demand seven more. Surely, for everyone when a ship's at port, the payment of all salaries owed, for abusive officers removed from their ships to never come back to them, advance payments to cover clothes for new recruits, amnesty for deserters, a larger share of war plunder for the rank-and-file sailors, who at present get an absurd one-seven-thousandth of what an admiral does. And most importantly, a change in the articles of war the emergency powers the fleet's officers use to justify their rampages of senseless violence. This feels like a good mix of the radical and the reasonable. You're confident the Admiralty will agree, and the mutiny can end without a drop of blood shed. You could even throw a big party to celebrate the agreement like they did at Spithead. But when the naval board come down to the nearby town of Sheerness, they don't bring champagne. They bring two regiments of militia. They frostily tell you that as far as they're concerned, the business has already been settled at Spithead, and they will make no further concessions. They leave General Charles Grey behind to subdue the floating republic. Neither side wants to start a civil war, but neither side is backing down. And so, the great chess game begins. Back and forth over the next few weeks, the pieces move. You sail into harbour at Sheerness and steal all its gunboats, birds opening. Grey waits until the next storm for you to sail them back into harbour to avoid shipwreck, then steals a bunch of them back, Sicilian defence. Grey points the cannons in the old fort at Sheerness directly at your fleet, Acheline's gun. You know he won't fire those rusty old tubes. Since if he did, they'd do more damage to his side than yours. So you have the men parade heedlessly in front of them, red and pink ribbons in their hats, singing a merry tune, Swindle. Grey's messengers start sweet-talking the ships less loyal to the mutiny, and two of them break loose and head out to sea, Lavian Gambit. Three ships come in from a fresh mutiny at Yarmouth to boost your ranks, red flags flying high, Albin Counter Gambit. Grey cuts off all food supply to the fleet, Zugsvang. You spread the fleet in a grand blockade of the Thames, cutting off all trade coming into London. Four nights game. Grey blocks all ships leaving London. Pin. You send a letter to the king, begging him to intervene in this madness, warning him that if he doesn't, you will have no choice but to cross the channel and hand the fleet over to the French. Break. The reply letter comes back, branding you traitors and demanding unconditional surrender. And in the meantime, hearing of your threat, Grey sinks every boy and navigation marker between the fleet and the sea, leaving you half-blinded. Check. That night you walk the decks of each of the hundred-odd ships in the fleet to talk up their morale, pounding your chest, shaking your fist, shouting to the men, Are you traitors? Hearing them roar back, No! Replying, Then your country has betrayed you! The next day you give the order to set sail. You will make good on your promise, half-blinded or no. But then, the ships don't move. Something is horribly wrong. You have misread the wind. The delegates are too loyal to their king to leave with their president. The men are hungry and thirsty and order is breaking down. Officers are being tarred and feathered. Flogging is rearing its ugly head again with an unbearable irony. 
The order to set sail causes all hell to break loose. Officers start seizing back their vessels, the red flags jostling for position with the white flag of surrender. One by one, ships peel off, and all the thundering cannon fire of the still loyal fleet cannot stop them. In the end, only your ship, the Sandwich, and a meagre handful of others are left. Perhaps you could still make a break for it. You have seen what one daring ship can do, even when outnumbered. But the winds have blown against you again. You know the feeling in your stomach well by now. You turn to ask the men if they would prefer the sandwich be controlled by you or the officers. They say the officers. So much for that oath of allegiance. You hand Lieutenant Flat the keys to the ship's gun stores. Checkmate. A rowboat comes to take you into Sheerness, where the townspeople boo and hiss at you. The English public that you and your men have kept safe from foreign invasion your whole lives. The court-martial the following week is a foregone conclusion. As polite and attentive as the presiding officers are in hearing your case, the date for execution may as well have already been set. And soon enough, it is. At six in the morning on a summer's day, you are woken, given a shave and a good breakfast, and sent to the deck of the sandwich. You say some prayers then ask for a glass of white wine, which they give you, and you sip it, savouring its crisp sweetness as you take in the scene around you. Thousands of sailors are watching from the nearby ships, thousands more civilians on a specially built viewing platform on land. Anne has been desperately trying to get aboard the sandwich since the day before with no success, and has finally made out towards you in a rowboat, but you don't know this, so you don't see her. You shake the hand of the ship's captain. You tell the crowd that you hope you will be the last of the citizens of the floating republic to hang. You get a strong feeling you won't. You take a minute to gather yourself, and then you tell them you're ready. You walk to the ship's edge. The rope is placed around your neck, and you step out into the wind. Fogland Lighthouse is written, produced and scored by me, Jack Dean. This episode is supported by Arts Council England and was commissioned by The Library Presents as part of their autumn season. You can check that out through the links in the liner notes of this episode. The show is presented by Jack Dean and Company. You can find out more about us and our projects at jackdean.co.uk. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Or you can email me on jack at jackdean.co.uk. If you get a moment, please leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or share the podcast with someone you think might like it. Those both help an awful lot. Quick programming note, we'll be taking a tiny break next week, so there'll be no episode on the 10th of January, but we'll be right back with you guys on the 17th. So catch you guys then, and a belated Happy New Year. Oh, hey,